Welcome to the Tokenomics DAO podcast, where we explore everything tokenomics related, ranging from deep dives on the tokenomics of the newest protocol to demystifying the nuance of building a successful token ecosystem. Our goal is to bring awareness to the importance of tokenomics and the crucial role it plays in defining the success of a protocol, helping make tokenomics relevant for everyone, builders and investors alike. I'm your host, Flo, joined by my co-hosts, Jason and or Lovis. Welcome to the podcast. So today on the Tokenomics Out podcast, I've got Lucas and Nihar from Jump Crypto. The guys have uh, written a nice article a while back, and uh, it's called Token Design for Serious People, introducing, um, yeah, some some guidelines or some framework to to analyze tokenomics. And I thought you guys can just kick it off by giving a short intro each, and then maybe one of you uh, doing like a short Eli 5 um, TLDR of the article, and then we can jump into a few of the aspects that you've covered. Lucas, do you want to kick us off? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, on the research and investments team at Jump, uh, where I uh, split my time between, uh, on the one side, you know, tokenomics, governance, um, DAO structures, uh, various uh, various topics around the ecosystem, and uh, on the other side, do a lot of uh, infrastructure work. So, um, generally looking at the the long term themes, the overall evolution of the crypto ecosystem over the uh, you know the medium to long term horizon. Cool, Nihar. What do yeah, you got? Yeah, no, uh, Chloe, thanks very much for having us on the uh, on the podcast. So, you know, Lucas and I have sort of the same, very similar roles here at Jump. Um, we both, you know, spend a lot of time on the research and development side of things. Um, more generally, Jump, as just a little bit of context, is um, it's a large global trading firm that has a lot of historical expertise trading all sorts of markets, you know, commodities, futures, equities, bonds. Um, but a couple of years ago, they decided to start trading crypto. And as you know, they started like I think all market makers start trading crypto just by like kind of doing some basic arbitrage around it. But as they went deeper and deeper, they realized that a lot of the infrastructure that they develop in the context of other trading systems are directly applicable to the things in crypto. And so Jump then kind of expanded what it does. Now it does a lot of building in this space, a lot of development in this space, a lot of investing in this space at the longer at longer horizons. And that's where folks like Lucas and myself come in. We spend a lot of time trying to Think about at a high level what are like jumps portfolio companies uh what do they really need you know the for the protocols that we're helping build what are like the real things that they're missing and how can jump uh you know develop the right solutions for them and so i think that's kind of the origin of this piece the tokenomic or token design for serious people piece um so it's like a very high level recap and i'm sure lucas will will be able to to, to do a much better job at, than me at explaining uh, much of it. But at a very high level, we sort of saw as we talked to a lot of these different uh, token projects that they didn't really have a good structure for thinking about tokenomics. They'd often think about tokenomics very much in like a short-term way. How do I get a marketing boost? And that to us, I think, was sometimes a little bit um, both frustrating and enlightening. It sort of showed us that tokenomics and token design really wasn't being done in any sort of structured or systematic manner in the industry. It was in this very ad hoc, you know, proof by anecdote, proof by example um, approach. And so we decided to like sit down and try and write some high level principles that we want all token designers to abide by. And that might guide them and give them a lot more 
uh, give them a lot more structure as they build out their, their, their protocols and their token designs. So the way we think about it is that token design should have these like two overriding principles. The first one is that we should try and have token design fund common goods. And I'm sure we'll get into over the course of the podcast, like what common goods are. Um, but at a high level, these are these positive externalities, these positive benefits that a community can create when they come together that perhaps like an individual might not be able to create on his or her own. Um, and then the second principle of that is to make sure that value is flowing back to the people who provide it. So a lot of the tokenomic models we saw had like a little bit of an extractive flavor. The early participants did a lot of the hard work. The later yield farmers got all of the returns. That's doing it all wrong. We sort of think that the people who do the work should be compensated for doing the work and, the, um, and token design should embed, incorporate that. And then in the piece, we go through a couple of examples, gas fees, security and staking, um, the 3-3 design governance, play to earn. And we use these two principles to score these various, um, uh, these various token, uh, sorry, these various tokenomic methods and see how they do. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I guess, that, I guess that's, that's really interesting. J just to, to summarize, um, you're kind of, that's mainly all come from the portfolio companies that you are uh, looking after, right? So you've been sort of helping them design their tokenomics or you've been reviewing it for, for jump. Is that sort of the, the process that you go through? And then you come across these things where they might not distribute value in the right way or it goes to the wrong sources um, or they don't participate to common goods, right? Is that kind of like the, the mode you operate in? Uh, that's certainly one of the key services that we provide as uh, both an investor and uh, a builder in the ecosystems that we care about. We very much want to see that uh, projects are aligned in terms of their tokenomics and the types of value that they're trying to drive. Uh, in terms of the piece itself, uh, we cover both some of uh, the in investments that we've made in the past, but also the canonical examples of certain models in the ecosystem. So, for um, for example, in a previous piece that we had on yield farming, we looked at the structure of curve tokenomics, uh, where you can have you, know, you you can have the base curve token, but you can also have the voting escrow token, which allows you to direct emissions. Similarly, in uh, our recent piece on token design. The example of uh, Olympus, uh, for instance, is one model that was widely imitated throughout, uh, I, I mean, throughout uh, many protocols across uh, every chain. And the, uh, I, I mean, the, the overall method there is similar between every protocol, but the uh, originator was Olympus. So we chose to address it at that level of yeah. how, how you might think about this, uh, this high level design, what it does what kinds of value it contributes and whether that's aligned with the original goals of the protocol. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think it's a, yeah, it's a really cool approach. So let's, let's maybe go into these, into these, into these two areas, right? Into the common goods and the value flow. So can, can we go into that common goods again um, and, and define that really? And uh, yeah, think through what that would do, right? For, for me, common good is kind of this, this open source, <clears throat> right, you write a piece of code and it's out there. Everybody can use it, um, but not. I mean, like all DeFi protocols or most of the or all of the decentralized stuff is is kind of open source, but not all of them produce something that's really like that. Right, a bunch of them are also like for profit. How, how does that kind of fit in? That was one of the initial questions that I had. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fair. Common good, I think we actually think of it as a little broader than that. It need not be necessarily 
open source, and it need not also be like completely altruistic, where the profits entirely flow to the community. Common goods, I think we actually think of are like more sort of fundamentally tied to externalities. So externalities is maybe a little bit of a jargony term, so let, so let me uh, explain it. It's uh, essentially positive or negative things people create that aren't really valued by the people who create them. So like, let's take a couple of examples. Um, I recently moved into a house, and part of that is I have to like maintain a front yard. And I'm not, I'm, I don't have any sort of a green thumb, so it's like an awful, awful procedure for me. And in an ideal world, I would probably just get rid of my front yard and just you know mow it over with concrete. Um, but that wouldn't be good for my neighborhood. That would make my house look ugly, sure. But that would also more generally look make all of my neighbors' houses look a little uglier as well. So that would be an example of a common bad, where I do something that I perhaps value or don't value, which is get rid of my garden, and I suffer a little bit of a property uh, property loss for it. But then I impose all these extra externalities on my neighbors that I don't directly care about. And so what's the countermeasure? Well, at least in the non-crypto world, we often have that a lot of these things are outlawed just by decree. For instance, my HOA will say, you can't do that, you must maintain your garden to a certain standard. And then there are all sorts of other examples like this, fireworks, pollution, things where maybe the person <clears throat> who's generating them doesn't value entirely the sum total of all the positive or negative surplus that that item creates. Um, so in the context of tokenomics, we think that tokenomics is just a coordinating mechanism. It's a way of taking this very, very diffuse community of actors that don't know each other, don't really know how to communicate with one another, and getting them to do things in the aggregate that create lots of value for one another, even if they themselves may not value it directly. So I think one good example, and I, you know, I don't want to go too much into the example because I'm sure we'll go into it later in the podcast, but one example might just be gas fees. Imagine a world where there just are no gas fees, right? What will happen then? First, the community will have no way of coordinating what transactions are high value and low value. They'll sort of just do it in some random order. They won't create a ton of surplus. There'll be a lot of surplus left on the table. There'll be people who want to get really important trades through, and there'll be people who want to get relatively unimportant trades through, and the community will have no way of distinguishing the two. So the coordination is sort of lacking. The other problem, of course, is that that's now very vulnerable to spam. People can now just issue hundreds, thousands, millions of transactions. They'll make the system entirely unusable for everybody. It's the equivalent of me creating ugly gardens uh, you know, everywhere. And so that generates no value, of course, for the spammer. They're just being adversarial. But that also then destroys all the value in the community at large, because now the community can't use the protocol to do anything worthwhile. And so gas fees are kind of the solution on both fronts. And it's one of the really canonically perfect examples of token design. It's a way of taking a bunch of anonymous people in a community together, bring them together, and say that now we can actually prioritize between high value and low value transactions, because the high value ones are bidding more. And now we have a way of deterring spammers and making the network usable for everybody because we charge some base price that prevents spammers from overwhelming the system. So I think we think of common goods as not necessarily purely altruistic, you know, in that example of gas fees, validators make money, you know, there's plenty of sort of funds uh, going around, but there is a lot of surplus that is unlocked that wouldn't be unlocked if there were no gas fees. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think that's a that's a beautiful example of uh, the way that tokenomics should work. And I just supplemented with one more drawn on uh, my experience in New York. You know, being uh, a few blocks from Central Park, that is a common and, in fact, public good that uh, no individual participant, i.e. resident of the city, 
would be either incentivized or able to provide on their own, but it's something that collectively benefits everyone. Similarly, you might have uh, resources in any crypto ecosystem, for example, a liquidity provision in DeFi that uh, no one individual can handle in its entirety, but which provides benefits to all. And tokenomics, again, can serve as a coordination mechanism there, whereby individuals can participate for reasons that because of the tokenomics become individually rational, even though no one could have bankrolled the entire project. Yeah. And, and that all with a couple of incentives, right? Put in, put in place in, in the right place. So, in the, and that's, I don't know, like in the, in the real world with Central Park, for instance, right? It doesn't work that way, right? It's more with that they implement rules and regulations, but in, in the crypto space, it's more like we do it with incentives or we focus more on these incentives, right? We're going to pay you to do this. We're going to um, yep. <clears throat> give you this leverage opportunity or whatever, arbitrage opportunity um, with this token. Uh, so that, yeah, that's, that's really an interesting way to, to kind of look at it, right? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, in the, in the traditional world, you kind of have both of those mechanisms. You can, you can certainly yes, yeah. the incentive-based approach. Um, and there are some examples. Maybe a good example might be uh, cigarettes. You sort of think that perhaps cigarettes might generate negative externalities on people who are around uh, the ones smoking, or maybe they generate negative externalities on the public health care system. So what does the government do? Well, they do some amount of banning cigarettes if you're under uh, 18, at least in the U.S. Um, but then they also do a lot of taxation. Cigarettes cost a lot more than the marginal cost of provide, uh, producing it. And that's like a way of sort of disincentivizing yeah, people yeah. on the margin from, from smoking. But governments also then do plenty of these other things, which are just rules. You know, the HOA tells me I must maintain a garden. Uh, the city of New York tells Lucas you're not allowed to build on Central Park. It remains a park. In crypto, you can't really do that because people are anonymous. There are a set of rules you can implement, but only within the confines of the protocol. It's much harder to implement system-wide rules. And certainly, it's virtually impossible to implement it on an identity yeah. basis. If you sanction one bad actor, they'll just go and create a new account. account. Yeah. And so that makes uh, the incentive-based mechanisms far more powerful in crypto than the rule-based mechanisms. Yeah, yeah. And in addition to identity, there's there's this notion of decentralization, right? The, why why can't you typically make these sorts of sweeping rules in crypto? Because there is no natural centralized entity. The very ethos of the system is to be decentralized. So while there's an, uh, I mean, governance is an excellent analogy to democracy, but the authority comes in the form of the entire system, which operates according to algorithmic rather than institutional rules. Yeah, yeah. Because you can't really, yeah, there's no way to, to really enforce these rules. So we, we got to go with incentives to, to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. And th and that's that's quite interesting, right? Because <clears throat> we don't have that centralized entity enforcing the rules. We've kind of gone through, gone to the decentralization and all these different protocols have come up with incentive structures. And that then makes this system of, of common goods, right? So I think that's sort of how I would see this, um, this, this part of your article, right? It's it's that all of them work together to provide that common good. But individually, they might have completely different drivers, like be financial, economical, whatever. Um, but as a whole, I think that's that's what that's how it works, right? If they don't provide a common good, then people won't use it. Or only in the short term for speculation, yes. right? For, for these like, uh, yeah, short term gains, whatever, whatever that might be. 
and that, yeah. that touches yeah, on. I think a lot. Of, oh, go ahead, Nira. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I was gonna say it just it like a lot of systems will break down in that yeah. case. Um, and so I think you're absolutely right that you sort of need these ways of coordinating people. You know, without common goods, generally you think that then the system just works the way it should. Um, if you're, you know, uh, people act in their self-interest, and so if you set up a design where if they do an action, they get exactly the value back that, that they create. You don't have to really worry too much. You don't need too clever of a design about that. Um, the common good aspect is essential because that's where a clever protocol designer can realize in the aggregate the community doing some sort of behavior is worth a lot more than it is to each participant individually. And that's really the whole point of this token. Yeah, yeah. In the, like staking, I think, is a good example where if I'm part of a protocol, I have no incentive to stake at all, right? If I just go and put up my tokens and say I'll secure transactions, everyone else will say thank you to me, but I'll, that'll yeah, achieve yeah. nothing. Um, by contrast, if the protocol designer sets up a whole staking system where there are rewards flowing to stakers and stakers kind of do things in the aggregate, now everyone starts to coordinate on the good equilibrium. I decide to stake, Lucas decides to stake, everybody decides to stake, and now you've created a secure system that everybody can use and all the individual participants are rewarded for. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> now, you touched upon identity, right? And I think ident identity is something that I'm, I'm really interested in, especially in this in this space. What would change if we had identity that you couldn't just change? Do you, do you have any like thoughts on that? Would that change the equation? Would that turn it into a centralized, controllable thing? What would it do? I think that, that uh, I mean, coordination mechanisms may remain largely similar in the sense that the life of any protocol without one will be nasty, brutish, and short. But uh, nonetheless, if you, if you had uh, a persistent notion of identity, you might see, on the positive side, uh, you might see an increased impact of reputation. Right now, you can only build positive reputation through a long series of repeated actions. But uh, if you had some tie to identity, both positive and negative reputation become possible. And people might care more not only about the explicit actions that they take on chain, but uh, also about their, their consequences off chain or about uh, you know, reputational impacts on any other systems of which they are a part. Uh, that said, I, I mean, part of, the, part of the great appeal of decentralization uh, is is that you can have anonymous participants who are voting purely based on not only their, their own interest, but free of any sort of coercion or any sort of external motivation that might be imposed on them otherwise. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And I'll add, um, identity is actually one of the things that we're very interested at, at Jump um, because we think a lot of the next wave of governance is going to need some notion of identity and so here we want to distinguish between, often when people talk about identity, we put it in very black and white terms. Either you're completely anonymous, you're just like a hexadecimal address, or we know everything about you. We know your name, we have your social security number, your driver's license, your address. In fact, there's like a middle point that I think crypto hasn't quite found that could be very powerful. Um, there are a couple, there's some work around, for instance, tying uh, identity to some like fuzzy, or sorry, tying addresses to some fuzzy notion of identity. I think the best example perhaps are these like soul bound tokens, this proof of personhood type mechanisms, things where you don't need to know too much about me. You just need to know enough about me to know that I'm a distinct person and it's not trivial for me to create a different address. You still may not know where I live, what I do, what I look like, but at least you know that these two addresses must be different people because there's a small barrier, a small identity based barrier 
to getting multiple addresses. And we think once you do that, the design space for governance in particular unlocks greatly. There's a piece that, uh, that we put out several months ago about, for instance, quadratic or square root voting. And this is like a little bit off topic, so I won't go down the rabbit hole too much, but it is a way of just trying to prevent whales from having undue influence on the protocol. Rather than you voting with how many tokens you have, you vote with the square root of the number of tokens you have. So if you have 100 tokens and I have only four, well, you only have 10 votes and I have two that, you know, the difference is a little more equalized. Um, now, without any notion of identity, this is a very stupid system because you can always just create 100 addresses and deposit a token into each one. But with some notion of identity, even some fuzzy notion of identity, all of a sudden, this type of mechanism and a lot of similar mechanisms suddenly come on the table. Yeah, I, like, I would agree completely and just yeah. add that uh, perhaps fuzzy uh, is, is one way of conceiving of it, but partial is another. Uh, and like you have not only a middle ground, but an entire spectrum of identity whereby you can, uh, you can attest to particular properties. Uh, for example, in the credit, in the lending case, you can have a credit score or you can have a social security number that is revealed only in case of default or any other combination of mechanisms that expose only necessary information, but uh, necessary and sufficient is really what you're going for in any crypto version of identity, whereby it's tailored to the protocol, to the system that you want to build. Yeah, yeah. And then like, I think, yeah. And then the, where, where does the stickiness come from, from that identity, right? What, what prevents you from, from just going and, and creating a new one um, is is probably the the reputation that you build, right? That's that's kind of you wouldn't want to give that away because you've, you've you it costs you like effort to to build up that reputation, right? And so only if you, I mean, and and, and also there comes in this like negative reputation, like when you misbehave in a system, and uh, you know, like your if you speed driving or drunk driving or something like that, right? You get these. Here in Australia, at least, you get these points, and then uh, <clears throat> after some time, you lose your license, whatever, right? So, but then you you can't just start over with a new identity, um, and so that's something, I guess, that would need to be built into this whole system, right? Yes, and you you might even imagine notions of identities that are illegible to other systems, yet non-fakeable within the system. For example, uh, let's say that no other system takes the hash of my fingerprint plus a facial scan. Uh, I, I mean, not that I would generally want to reveal that much information as part of an identity verification, but let's say we're combining those two things and nobody else has that form of identity. Then I sign on to a given protocol using this identity and I can gather reputation. I care about that reputation. I can't form a new unassociated identity with this protocol if something happens with the original one and yet this identity doesn't need to be shared with any other protocol. Yeah, yeah, because it's tied to some biometrics um, that that just can't be made up or changed, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think there's, there's so much in this space and I think there's lots of areas that are, that are evolving in the, in the identity area. Um, also with regards to I think like the whole reputation is, is something that we, we currently don't see. Right. So, um, <clears throat> for, to me, it's like this, you, you work on chain, you do all this work, people do, uh, contribute to different DAOs. They, they produce, do good things, um, create value, but they, 
they really get nothing. And the only way to to build up a reputation is kind of maybe the Twitter followers, uh, something like that is, is that mechanism, but it's not very granular and you can, you can buy it. Like you, you could buy Twitter followers or you could just um, <clears throat> like just based on creating attention that also creates Twitter followers, but value creation doesn't necessarily. So that's something I, I really see that is missing. And then also transferring that between different entities. So there's lots of different, you know, I see DAOs, they're minting these NFTs to do their reputation. Then there's these soul bound thing, there's self sovereign identity, but there's no real standards um, happening at the moment and, and also nothing tied to any of these biometrics. So yeah, it'll be really interesting to yeah. see what's coming there. Yeah. If you had, a, I think in many ways, <laughs> Oh, sorry. We keep, keep calling oh, right. each other a bit. Um, what I was going to say is, uh, in many ways, you've described a lot of informal <clears throat> mechanisms for, for reputation where, you know, you kind of, even if maybe even if you don't have a Twitter following, if you're very active in the protocol, people associate this hexadecimal address with doing good work, but almost no protocols have embedded anything formal into it. There's a little bit of work around, I think, reputation vesting, um, and Lucas might know more about that than me. Um, but for the most part, like, if you just do good work, you know, people kind of know your address, maybe they know your Twitter account. Maybe in rare cases they know your name, but there isn't anything where formally you have a lot of more, you have more power, more yeah, rights yeah. in the protocol uh, for all of those. It might groups. land you a different job, right? That that might be something, but uh, that's not really formal, right? It's yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's an interesting case where the notion of identity and DAOs uh, intersects partially with uh, let, let's say the mechanisms of reward in tokenomics, but not exactly. Ideally in a DAO, you'd want a creator portfolio that could uh, serve as a portable, you know, that, that, that could use, uh, you could use as an application to other DAOs or that you could use for additional roles within the current DAO, something that was tied to, again, exactly as much of a notion of identity as you wanted to expose, but nonetheless, something that you'd maintain and carry over uh, as a self-sovereign identity over time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, portable. That's. I think that's the key point. And then also the the, the negative uh, reputation should be part of it. Like, it, I would want to know if that person had uh, ripped off another DAO or uh, not committed to a project or left or I don't know did harm in some way. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> anyway, yeah. Uh, it, this, this, this topic is quite interesting. I think a lot of people are trying and I, I feel like it's an idea that's sort of ripe, um, within the next year or so to, to develop and get a lot more attention than it, than it has. Um, there, there are all kinds of notions of, uh, reputational staking that you could build into even a semi-anonymous identity system. For example, to, to take uh, your point about negative reputation, let's say that I had an anonymous creator portfolio that uh, for which on accepting any new job with that portfolio, I had to stake my reputation in advance on some notion of completion. Maybe if there were a dispute, it would be arbitrated by some Claros court, et cetera. But regardless of the mechanism, uh, notions of pre-commitment are very similar to the notions of staking that we discussed in the tokenomics piece. Yeah. 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 That, yeah. And then you get this like, yeah, this aspect of like, you can build like whole networks of this, right? You could, I could stake my reputation uh, for you and with that, you become credible because I'm giving you my credibility. I'll lend that to you, right? And so you could 
build these whole networks. I've written this article on this, uh, I think it's called the Kilt Protocol. They're like this SSI uh, protocol niche thing, I think. Um, and they're they're built on creating this network of of identities and going to that aspect as well, where you can stake your reputation with others and they can uh, yeah, use that uh, to, to issue something, issue documents, whatever. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And I think what you're describing is a lot of these yeah. personhood yeah. type yeah. mechanisms where, um, you just have yeah, these like sort of very diffuse social networks and you know, you know, I may not know your name, but I know that a buddy of mine knows a buddy of mine, yeah. knows a yeah. buddy of mine yeah. vouches for you. So that, you know, may or may not yeah. be good enough. It's kind of what LinkedIn does, right? LinkedIn, um, I'd, I'd, I'm not a big fan of LinkedIn, but what they what they do, they have this system of you can endorse someone else, and that depending on who endorsed you, if that person then has a lot of endorsements in the field that he endorsed you with, that gives it more credibility. And so there's this once you have such a network, there's these interesting effects that you can build up on um, proving how good such an endorsement is if you get if you know what i mean right it's it, it's you could you could easily use this kind of system and i don't know to what degree they, they do but uh yeah that's something that's uh it's quite interesting i think <laughs> linkedin endorsements are a particularly interesting example in that uh, you know, in theory they amount to a sort of page rank in social networks or in uh in work where your you know, your reputation follows you based on the reputations of those who endorse you. In practice, LinkedIn endorsements usually aren't regarded as particularly valuable. Yeah. And this is because not, not only can they be given lightly, but uh, they also have no notion of verifiability. So that's actually one of the use cases where you could imagine a crypto solution being naturally better in the sense of linking by default to whatever documentation is available, similarly to how if a developer has a public GitHub, you can evaluate the quality of their projects immediately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you would say still have to go through some process in, in finding out the quality of, of the thing, right? Stars and a GitHub repo is not the, the main, you can also buy that or fake that. But yeah, I, I agree. And then, yeah, I, I, I wrote this piece like a, like a year ago or two years ago, I don't know, um, on how you could source all that information because there's so many different systems that have it. There's LinkedIn, there's GitHub, there, there might be like a ton of others, freelancer platforms. You could source all that and sort of, um, put that all into, into one place, uh, an identity somewhere. And that, that would be then a, a really cool, I guess, CV replacement, right? Cause we'd be much more credible if you have like your whole GitHub, um, repo where it, where it sources information from maybe where it's used, where it's deployed, then the whole LinkedIn thing, uh, all the gigs that you've done, if you did on freelancer platforms, whatnot. Um, but anyway, I, uh, and for what's worth, I'll just add, we actually see that quite a bit, uh, at jump now when people more often than not, when we start to get resumes, they look less and less like the traditional <laughs> yeah. resumes, uh, of, of the old days and they'll much more have like the projects they work on and the yeah, ways those yeah. projects have been used. Okay. We're, we're seeing a shift there already. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no longer is somebody's GPA <laughs> in college or something at the top of the page. Now we're starting to see like, what you've been working on, which I think is a lot better. I don't know why we stuck <laughs> around with that for so long. Um, 
<laughs> well, you cool. can't staple um, every project to your CV. When <clears throat> when uh, credentialing is replaced by documentation, it creates a better outcome for everyone. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. And then if it's if it's verifiable immediately, that that would make it a lot uh, cooler, right? Because uh, I think if you now have these CVs with all these projects in it, and you are the one looking through them, it just causes a lot of time, right? Because how do you know if it's if it's any good? So if you can verify that some way um make it really make it really cool really great system i think then yeah uh -huh. all right <clears throat> we've uh we've went down this this rabbit hole a little bit even though we didn't want to um so then the other aspect of your piece right to get back to that now is this value value creation right so you create value and it somehow should flow back um could you like walk us through that again um, a little bit more detail, you know, you, I think like, it's very obvious within proof of proof of work, right? You validate, um, transactions or proof of stake, you validate transactions and create that block. And then you get some reward for it, right? You get some of the transaction fee, maybe in that case. Um, but how about with, you also talked about DAOs. I think in, in like DAOs, do you have any examples on how that would work there? You create some value and um, yeah, how that would then flow back to the creator potentially? Yeah, um, so I guess actually before we go into DAOs, I'll even go back to, to the proof of work, yeah. proof of stake example. <clears throat> um, that's even one where at least I, I sort of think we don't do as good a job giving value to those who create it. And by that, I mean, in a lot of cases, there are often miners, let's just take proof of work to make it concrete. There are a lot of miners who expend computational effort and don't yeah, come first. Yeah. And they, in many ways, did a good job securing the system. They put in time, they put in like computing cycles and they get nothing for it. Now, of course, if you're a big miner, that's not a problem, like probabilistically over the long haul, you will earn the expected value of your rewards. Once in a while, you'll miss. Once in a while, you'll get it. Kind of averages out. Uh, but if you're a small miner, I mean, sure, probabilistically, if you do it over 200 years, you might win the reward every now and then. Um, in practice, you're just going to get frustrated and you're going to stop. And so we see actually a lot of consolidation of mining pools for precisely, I imagine, this reason, which is that, A, of course, it's a more professional operation and you can get some uh, sort of scale effects that way. But B, you actually don't have value flowing to the people who are creating it in a highly decentralized system. So your system tends to a little bit over-centralize. Now, this might be a minor thing to nitpick because we've certainly seen other protocols that have worse examples of value creation. Um, and proof of work and proof of stake gets pretty close to the ideal. But even there, I think we can partially blame the over-centralization on that like lack of giving value to the people who put in the hard work but don't always get there yeah, first. Yeah, because, because operations such as mining have been typically grouped, right? It just makes more sense. Economies of scale. Grouped, yeah. Right. And they sort of like, yeah, economies. Of, exactly. Exactly. And so like you just incentivize yeah. this slightly yeah. wrong metric. Um, Turning okay. to the example of DAOs, I, I think in the case where you have uh, human contributors doing jobs explicitly, uh, like uh, bounded contractual uh, pieces of work, that can be an extremely natural mapping when it's clear uh, approximately how much a given feature or a given contribution is worth. You simply dispense a certain amount of grant tokens to them. And uh, often you see this uh, in a subcommittee or working group structure that essentially replicates the, the traditional organizational structure in a distributed setting. 
Uh, you, you can also see pretty natural mappings where governance is concerned, even though I don't think this has been implemented so much in practice. So uh, for example, one of the things that we cover in the piece is that people typically don't get credit for writing governance proposals. Uh, it would be slightly subtle to design a good way to reward governance proposals because, of course, if you just gave a certain amount for every proposal, people would spam proposals. And uh, similarly, any metric that can be gamed generally will be because people bear no downside for doing so. Yeah. That said, perhaps you could invent a metric that uh, would uh, that would hold up as a reasonably good proxy, even under Goodhart's law of people trying to manipulate the metric being measured. So I uh, I would guess that rather than rewarding the number of governance proposals, rewarding the amount of engagement with a given governance proposal, uh, at least if it was hard to sibyl the engagement as well, that could provide a better means of alignment for distributing token rewards to people who provided governance value to the platform. Or like the impact, if you could, I don't know how, how you would measure it, right? But the, maybe the, the impact of the governance proposal, we'll look into it in a year's time and see what it has done to the overall stats of, of this DAO protocol. Yeah, that might be, I imagine that yeah. one would just be really hard to measure in practice. A, because you'll probably be passing tons of governance proposals and B, there'll be proposals that fail. Yeah. So you'll never have the counterfactual, what would happen. Um, but that being said, I think like engagement is, I think a, a very good example of where there's, there's a lot of subtlety because, you know, maybe token designers or protocol designers might say, let's do something simpler. I agree, people who write governance proposals aren't rewarded. Let's just have the ones that pass. If your governance proposal passes, and meant you wrote a good governance proposal, you get some extra bonus. And that's probably a good thing on face value. But what will that incentivize then? Well, that'll incentivize the layups. That'll incentivize the really easy sort of steps that yeah. the pro protocol should take. Because then, you know, they get voted in by a big margin and so on. And that's good, nothing wrong with that but that won't incentivize true risk-taking. Like a good protocol should be debating a lot of governance proposals and they should be vetoing a good ch chunk of them. If you're not uh, veto vetoing or <clears throat> failing enough governance proposals, you probably aren't looking at the full distribution of risky proposals. You're only looking at the really, really safe local maxima type stuff. Um, so a good protocol should actually incentivize a lot of proposals that get engagement, that get careful thought and that are ultimately failed as a metric that they're really taking risks out there. And so that's where engagement actually might be like closer to what you really want. You want a lot of people debating, arguing, comparing notes, and then whether it succeeds or fails, at least you did a good job stretching, you know, the imagine your imagination for what the- Actually the curve wars are a fairly good example of, of what happens in a way when you incentivize only what passes in the sense that curve voting for a given gauge is well, every vote passes, but that means that you get an entire bribery layer uh, with Vodium or other services that uh, simply distribute the rewards among the voters for the proposal and thus incentivize success without real reference to the value contributed to the protocol. Uh, of course, in Curve's case, you know, by and large, you still do have valuable things being accomplished by the gauge voting in that the most valuable gauges with the most fees get the most uh, you know, votes allocated to them. But nonetheless, if you simply incentivize success, sometimes you get perverse consequences. And uh, in the, the case where you incentivize only successful governance proposals, not only as Nihar mentioned, would you have 
the problem that you disincentivize all risky uh, proposals and uh, you fail to recognize the value of rejected proposals, you also get the, uh, the engineer's fallacy where you only value what can be measured. And this applies even if you go for impact. So that's, yeah. uh, in, in that sense, it's difficult to fully remove the human element. We can only get a series of increasingly better approximations. Yeah, yeah. And, <clears throat> and I think, yeah, we, we can try and get as, as close to, to that as, as sort of possible, right, with this reward um, flowing back. Uh, yeah, I, th I think like it's something that a lot of, a lot of communities are just, um, are just like st struggling with, right? Cause it's, it's often not just, um, voting or proposals, but it's often also this, like this, like natural type of work. So I see it in, in Bankless DAO, right? So they've got this, they've got this token, um, which gives everybody ownership and that should, um, ideally incentivize them to work towards this greater mission of, of bankless DAO, um, onboarding all these people, because if they do, the number of the token goes up. That's the whole idea of it, right? Because the, the pay that you really get is not that much, it's not going to pay your bills. So the idea, so, so give you a really concrete example, right? I wrote an article for them and spent like 20 hours and I got 4,000 bank token and they were worth, I don't know, 50 bucks. So not really good use of my time in the end. But the idea is like, if, if I keep these tokens and I continue, I've got skin in the game in this thing, I, I, I keep, keep doing, keep building up this thing. And then the, 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 the token goes up at some point and I've, I've contributed to it, um, in, in some way. So I think in, in these cases, it's like really hard to measure this reward flowing back of of when it becomes bigger, right? Because you don't know which of these articles was the one that, that made it that far, right? Cause you just get this like fixed yes. payment. But what if you wrote the article that got like the million reads, um, that that's, that's not factored in. So, yes. And I would say even a big chunk of that is, uh, even independent of if you like, even independent of the value the articles create, uh, if you notice in that example, or let's just say like you have a stock of tokens, you tell your friends about the protocol, they go and get involved and that, you know, benefits the protocol. If you notice, like, there's a very small difference between me doing all the work and getting all my friends to get on the protocol and Lucas, perhaps in this example, who has a bunch of tokens that he holds passively, just sitting yeah. and waiting for me to do all the work. Because in both our ca both cases, the reward that we gain is actually mostly proportional to the stocks that we have yeah. with the token ahead of time as opposed to the true effort that we put in. So like this, this sort of mechanism will end up, you know, maybe incentivizing really big holders to put in the effort, like the founding team and so on. But your average token holder might say, yeah, for every, you know, hundred dollars I bring to the platform, I get to see one one thousandth of a penny. So yeah. like, what's the, what's, what's that worth? Um, whereas a more like targeted referral system, I think would hit both of our concerns. It would then, you know, if you actually created a lot of value, it would actually reward you for that value. And in the same vein, if I didn't hold a big stock of tokens, but I created a lot of value for the platform, the platform would pass. How, how would that, that targeted referral system work? Like how, can you break that down a little bit? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I guess I don't know enough about- Anything will do, yeah. Particular model <laughs> to maybe weigh in on that. 
but yeah, any sort of token model. Right? Um, it might just be that you know when you join a protocol, you have to kind of credit the address that brought you on board or something like that. Even something as simple as that, uh, you know, like every Web2 company has generally figured out a referral program. And that is like a good alignment of incentives that crypto probably can use. Now, I'm sure like if we sat here uh, for, for a little more time, we could come up with more clever, clever ways of doing this. Um, for instance, um, you know, maybe if you had different proposals or different governance proposals that you were, uh, you were trying to get past, there might be like staking in governance or something like that. So if your proposal gets passed, you get some lion's share of the rewards. There are like other ways we could think about, I'm sure, like more tightly linking outcomes to the effort put in. But I think even this is like one good example where the system kind of has like a high level metric that makes a lot of sense, but then the devil is in the details and just saying, bring people to the platform that'll benefit all of us isn't strong. Yeah, so yeah, the exactly. one other interesting subtlety here is when you are issuing token denominated rewards, do you use them as uh, simply FX for a cash payment stream, or do you treat them as building an increased stake in the platform? And I think most, I mean, most protocols uh, ultimately are, are trying to align incentives, and so they favor the latter. Yeah, yeah, they do, yeah. And yeah, I don't know, that's, that's probably the, uh, the, the whole, idea of what they're what they're all talking about right is this like we're, we're giving away ownership um and you you'll be an owner of of bankless DAO. um so yeah and it's it's something i've been like thinking about for quite some time because i i work for for big tech and there you'll get you'll get shares right um of that of that corporation and of course if you work 100 hours a week uh, you add a lot of value, share price doesn't budge. If you do nothing at all, share price doesn't budge, right? There's there's, there's nothing really happening there because I mm -hmm. think the thing has gotten too big for you to have an impact. So this this mechanism of, of ownership somehow like, I think the larger you get, the less relevance it has. So I think that's a, that's a huge problem that a lot of these DAOs will also run into. So it, it becomes a weaker and weaker incentive mechanism to me. And um, I don't really know how to solve it, but it should be in a way that if you're kind of like a, a product manager, right? And you're responsible for launching a new product within this, um, this DAO or large corporation or whatever, you'd launch kind of like a sub token. And that would give you then ownership in this specific initiative and wh where you can have upside and downside in what happens with it. So you, you have this like in increased skin in the game that you wouldn't otherwise have. If you just, if you wouldn't have that system, you just put one person into it and say like, okay, you develop this product, you're the owner of it. But um, he wouldn't really have any of this in, in the skin of the game, even though he would hold tokens or he would be paid tokens because it, it yeah, it's uncertain what impact it would have, right? I think not only uh, it does it increase your skin in the game, but to revisit uh, our, our framework, it increases your alignment with the part of the platform to which you're contributing value. The, I mean, the issue that you're describing is essentially as a platform uh, grows in total value, necessarily the amount that it can give out for any given task decreases. And so it's difficult to affect the uh, value of the platform as a whole. But if you know that with a sub-token, you are affecting the particular part of the platform that you are striving to improve, then 
not only will you uh, not only will you likely work harder on it, but you will realize those rewards more directly and immediately. Yeah, yeah. So, have you seen that anywhere? This this type of system, this type of setup. One that I saw somewhat recently um, is Helium. So, I imagine most folks are familiar with Helium, but you know, as a recap, it's the it's the protocol that's coordinating the rollout of these uh, sort of home or decentralized internet devices or internet hotspots. Um, so they sort of have had like a large network of these low range, oh, sorry, uh, low power, long range uh, networks. But now they want to move to 5G. And so, you know, there's sort of two ways you could implement that move. One way is like the old fashioned way, just like start going for that and start incentivizing and use the same token to incentivize that. They've gone the second way, which is the one we're discussing. They've actually issued or they're in the process of issuing a token called mobile. Um, and that's like a separate token from their original native token, or it's a sub-token that then converts back up into the uh, top-level token that is just designed around rewarding and incentivizing the rollout of the 5G network. Mm -hmm. and, the 5G and then how does it roll back up? And at the same time, so, uh, so at the same time, there's a second token that they're issuing, which is the IoT token, and that's for continued development yep. in their, of their original network. So that's their uh, long-range, low-power, the stuff that's good for Internet of Things, but maybe not for your cell phone. And so now you have these like two sub-DAO tokens that then roll up into being able to purchase uh, the original, call it reserve token, the HNT, the the, uh, the HNT token. And to some degree, they've almost set up a little bit of a horse race, like whichever token does better will convert back into the reserve token yeah, at a yeah. more favorable valuation. So now the community can kind of pick, they can kind of invest, they can say, you know, I'm really passionate about the 5G map roadmap, so I'm going to try and accrue a lot of tokens that way. And if they, that you know, that person's efforts and more generally the 5G community's efforts are very successful, they will get a lion's share of the outstanding emissions of the reserve token at the expense of the people who are trying to invest in the other thing. And so that is actually, I think, a much tighter way of linking outcomes to actual uh, performance rather than just in this fuzzy, you know, we want to now do two initiatives, everybody gets tokens. They're instead saying, like, we're going to put these two initiatives almost a little bit competitively, and the better yeah, one... Yeah, I mean, more. that's a really interesting model, right? Where you kind of bring up your own team against each other and have this natural competition. Yeah, it's a, it's yeah. a little, little adversarial. So how does but, the value you know, accrue I mean, to the token? Do, uh, um, in the case of the 5G thing, for instance, how, how, do, how does the value kind of flow back into that sub-initiative? <clears throat> yeah, so I'm not entirely sure of the mechanics of the sub-DAOs. I know at the high level, the way it works is if you want to actually use Helium or you want to use like one of the data providing services, you have to buy tokens and then, you know, burn them with the original parent uh, parent treasury. And so that's at a yeah. high level how the model accrues value. I don't exactly know how like the emission <clears throat> schedules for these two sub-DAO tokens work. Um, and so, yeah, yeah no, I think it's... Maybe I can find someone who's interested in uh, evaluating this this protocol, uh, Helium, and check out how these different tokens, because it sounds really interesting. I think that, that's a, a, a very interesting problem to solve in in a lot of other DAOs or ecosystems uh -huh. or communities in general. Yeah. Uh, cool. Um, anything else in the in the reward um, redistribution? that we we should cover uh i feel like we can always talk about 
Ohm's yeah. reward redistribution. Cool. I know Lucas uh, Lucas certainly has thoughts on that one, but I don't know if I want to. <laughs> well, put him on in the terms spot. of reward redistribution, I think perhaps the um, well, one other interesting topic that uh, we covered in the article but uh, haven't discussed here yet is play to earn, and I think this this offers a very interesting case of how the good and bad of tokenomics tend to intersect. So, uh, I mean, let's let's say that there is an intrinsic utility on uh, move to earn, for example. You're, you're becoming healthier. Uh, perhaps there would be you know, corporate or uh, health sponsors willing to contribute value to the platform on that basis. But in terms of how move to earn is typically realized, you have maybe some, uh, some token or NFT gated uh, program. And this is a scarce supply, both the uh, NFTs or whatever the uh, access pass is and the tokens themselves are somewhat in scarce supply. And the lion's share are accumulated by the early participants on the platform. And so you, um, th th this is something that uh, I think we're, we're still developing the formalizations around, but in a way you want to target your tokenomics as specifically as possible. That is uh, not only do you want to ask what or whom do we want to reward, you also want to ask how much do we want of the metric that we're targeting? Or uh, to, uh, to what threshold do we want to incentivize certain behaviors? So um, there are some protocols for, um, for example, for uh, swaps, you know, a AMMs, DEXs, uh, the farming platforms, et cetera, where instead of incentivizing as much TVL as possible with uh, simple linear emissions, there are rewards up to a certain level that decrease after that threshold. And this, this requires a protocol to have a notion of what the right amount is. But as long as they do have such a notion, they can say, okay, we reward steeply up to a certain point and quickly declining thereafter because we don't want to, you know, we, we don't want to, we, we don't want to distribute our efforts on something that is not necessary. We don't want to waste uh, incentives of which there is always a limited supply on activity that we don't need in the protocol. Yeah. So kind of once that bootstrapping is done, they, they taper off and, and stop the distribution. Yes. Yeah, so the, in general, tokenomics make a very effective solution to the cold start problem through distribution of ownership in advance. But once they've solved the cold start problem, they should fall off in some way. And by and large, the, the vast majority of protocols that we've observed haven't really thought about that yet because getting the zero to one is the first priority. But uh, yeah. I think as we focus on the one to N and sustainable systems where there is a steady state after the marketing budget, for lack of a better word, is exhausted, you really do need that one to N stage where the, um, the things that don't need to be incentivized aren't. Yeah, yeah. And so... And I'll, I'll add that, you know, um, in many ways, we find out the protocol designers we speak to are really good about thinking about the cold start problem. They understand they have to be like generous and aggressive in accumulating customers. Um, but I think we joke sometimes that they need to also <laughs> think about the cold restart problem, which is, you know, sometime down the road, crypto winter may set in, their protocol may fall out of favor, they may need a redesign to overhaul things. And if you've already given away all of the token, the treasury tokens at that point, that's it, you're done. You'll have yeah. to rebuild from yeah. scratch, and that's much more painful. And so, yeah, so, so we encourage them to actually be more judicious about, you know, thinking about 
marketing as having some very very fixed lifetime and then moving on to keeping tokens so who's, who's done that well who's done that goes. in a way that you'd say hey that, that was really good you've done the cold start you've seen that you've started it but then you've stopped There, I see a niche there. There yeah. are a few examples of, uh, well, the Delta Phi is one that I recall that uh, handles the TVL problem in the way that I just described. Uh, there are a couple of others which I'm forgetting at the moment, but uh, essentially the, the tokenomics do fall off after a certain level of TVL is reached in a given pool or in a given part of the system. And uh, if you if you implement that more broadly, then you can really establish a framework um, that carries over the analogy from Web 2 of you know, CAC, LTV, churn, all of these traditional customer concepts. To frame it in, an, in another way, if you have these unlimited tokenomic distributions that continue after the thing that they need to incentivize has been realized, you're essentially paying infinite CAC that's, or, or at least CAC that linearly scales with time. And you really want to pay it once and be done. Yeah, yeah, true. And and hopefully have it running in a sustainable way then, right? So it's something. It would be something KPI bound. That would be the the current common approach. Like Target some KPIs. Some TBL. Yeah, and then it tapers off. And you can even do that, I guess, algorithmically in probably like most of the DeFi cases. I think for yeah, I don't know. Maybe for DAOs, it could be some revenue figures. Um, uh, yeah, that's uh, yes. an interesting Lefinity, thing. Right? That was the one I was trying to think of. What was that? Sorry. Uh, Lefinity. Lefinity. Okay. Yeah. Haven't heard of that one. Um, I'll look it up and link it in the, in the notes. Um, <clears throat> that's, yeah, that's definitely something interesting because I, I, I see, you know, currently the, the focus in, in tokenomics is, is really mainly on. Let's get a token out there. Let's design it. So a lot of the, the clients or the people I talk to, that that's that's their problem, right? right? We want to launch a token, but not a lot of them are working on this post-launch. We've launched our token. Let's review not only the monetary policy but also the incentives, the mechanisms, this whole design in terms of like how is the actual business or the project or the protocol going, and does that does that require any change? And I think that's something. I see as hopefully more and more we'll get into. So last week I talked to um, uh, Ice Cool from BanklessDAO and the way they do it, right? They have a tokenomics department within BanklessDAO and they, um, they kind of just figure out what the different problems are that, that come from the ecosystem and they write proposals on it. And then the community can decide, hey, this is something that we want to um, implement. So they might go and write a proposal on a VE model for Bankless DAO and describe with which different departments this model or this VE token could be implemented to achieve certain goals. And then the community can decide if they want to implement it or not. And so uh, that, that's something I think hopefully more and more we'll get into this like post-launch stuff. I think we're quite confident that we we will see more sophisticated and long uh, and far-sighted models over time. Uh, mostly to this point, it's the foundational or uh, the zero to one design issues that uh, you know predicate mere existence. So, do you have a sensible distribution between the team and the investors and the community and the treasury? Do you have uh, 
you know, an inflation schedule that is capped at any given point in time? Do you have uh, enormous unlocks that introduce disequilibriums to the system? Like all, all of these are very much first order issues that have to be solved before the long-term uh, the long-term balance can be considered. But uh, now that I think generally teams have a, at least a decent idea of what they should do versus what they shouldn't do on the first order issues, they can start considering the second order ones. Yeah, yeah. Because they've gone past it, right? Once you've, once you've distributed it, there's, and it, that's it. <laughs> Unless you mint new tokens. That's it, yeah. And and that's where I think we've, we maybe have learned some bad lessons from Web2. Like, for Web2, let's take as a good example Facebook. Um, they didn't really care about revenue when they launched. They were just in complete cu customer acquisi acquisition mode. Um, and so they just purely invested in that, didn't care about anything else. And then later on in the life cycle of the business, well, they figured out how to actually monetize it and put ads onto the platform and so on. But Web3 doesn't have that luxury, right? When Web2 wants to do that, well, guess what? Zuckerberg has all of the voting control effectively under his like personal account. So he can pivot uh, decisions like that very easily. Web3 is the opposite. If you had a successful launch, you probably have very yeah. little residual power left with the founding team. And so now you have to coordinate this very diffuse, decentralized community for big business decisions that try and keep the protocol sustainable. And that's so much harder. So in many ways, Web3 has a much higher bar, which is they have to think about sustainability from the start. Yeah, another and analogy of uh, bad lessons it. from Web2 would be uh, blitz scaling. I mean, there, there are plenty of companies that uh, essentially in the, you know, in the traditional technology framework, you raise a, uh, you, you raise a large amount from investors, this enables you to get a head start, build a moat, uh, and assure your position as the you know the the front runner in that vertical. And then you can figure out monetization once you have a business model locked in. Once uh, essentially you've you've established that lead over your competitors. But uh, the you know, the danger of using the blitz scaling approach from the outset is that you may never think about an, uh, an economic model at all, or at least not until it's too late. This is sometimes less of a problem in Web2 because just as Nihar said, you kind of have opportunities for reset in the middle. But uh, with, with crypto, if you're decentralized, unless you choose to launch another token, you can be stuck with the design choices that you made at the very start. So you really do have to give some thought to it up front. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if we're making our lives a lot harder than uh, there would have already been in, in launching business or project um, this way, right? Because it's, it just takes so much, yeah, effort and energy in the beginning to think this all through. And you could focus that energy in actually building the product. Um, and that's why, yeah, I, I don't know if, what, what ways there are around it. But I think that's also something um, interesting to solve in the in the years to come, right? One would hope. That it's like, oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's it's. No, no, I was just going to say it, it's it's uh, it's kind of a shame. Um, but I will say that the positive news is when it comes to technical development, we see a lot of that. Like a lot of the protocols we talk to, they've built their product from an engineering point of view to handle you know millions and if not like billions of transactions. Um, but the problem is then when it comes to these other things like governance, tokenomics, and so yeah. on, they just sort of slap governance the standard token. model on and hope that it carries them through. And it's kind of a shame to see just like such finely engineered pieces of metal 
you know, coupled with such yeah, a bizarre, yeah. like... Also, having said all that uh, doom and gloom about, you know, having to predict the future up front, it's not necessarily that um, that bad because good governance can fix bad tokenomics to an extent. It just requires the alignment of the, the community. So, for example, uh, this, is, this isn't a direct example of DAO governance, but I'd say mm -hmm. Ethereum, you know, had a had a problem with gas fees uh, being astronomical last year. They were still astronomical after the implementation of EIP-1559, which, uh, you know, which broke the gas into the base plus priority model, but nonetheless, much less bad than it was. That was an immensely complicated change for the, uh, you know, for the Ethereum community as a whole, but nonetheless, it was negotiated post facto. This, this, EIP-1559 was not anticipated at the outset, like when Vitalik released the white paper for Ethereum. Nonetheless, it was eventually implemented and it fixed the problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's actually a good example, right, of these post-launch tokenomics. They went in and, and, and changed stuff after problems they've seen. But yeah, not, not a lot of protocols are at this, st this stage, or I, I think it's like not a, a topic that is very well covered um, in terms of what, what they do change things i'm sure we'll see that yeah mm -hmm. yeah yep. you just take yeah. a lot of risks that if your community doesn't support it or doesn't see it or it's just fractured i mean you know we've seen it time and time again with all sorts of forks between uh you know different uh different l1s that if you had just picked the right sort of plan from the beginning or at least some right transition plan that's much easier than putting it up for a vote and then having people yeah. split off into factions and so on so like Good governance can fix bad token design, but the thing that can fix bad token design even better is just like some wrenching ahead of time, some for yeah. foresight. So, I talked to this um, this one guy uh, from a from, from some fund, and he told me like in the beginning they they weren't they weren't really seeing tokenomics as an actual field of of innovation, right? They were seeing like oh the protocols they're doing a lot of great stuff, but tokenomics isn't isn't really they're they, they thought it would be, there's going to be this one model, we're going to slap it onto everything and that's it, right? It's going to be like like shares, like equity, right? Where you pretty much have the same model for everything. Um, and it turned out that they they quickly found out that it's not that way, that, you know, like there's lots of innovation in the space of tokenomics. So um, you also mentioned sustainable tokenomics. What are you seeing in this field um, as kind of, emerging innovations where do you see it heading um yeah what are, what are your thoughts on that so i guess uh on my side i think governance is probably the place i'm like most excited about the future um so i think like governance has a lot of potential but too often like i we see tokenomics or we see protocols that like design you know a complicated system and then just, again, slap on a layer of, if there are changes, governance will handle that without thinking much about like what that sentence means. Um, but we are seeing like a lot of changes. So I think like the one token, one vote model is obviously not great. And I think we all understand that that gives disproportionate share to, or disproportionate power to whales, gives disproportionate power to uh, short-term holders. And so like VE, I think is an excellent, excellent innovation in this respect. Um, and it seems like this sort of more general lockup strategy is likely to stay. Now it's not going to be perfect, and we've seen with Curve and Convex that if the VE uh, mechanics are too effective, somebody will just build a Gives protocol on top yeah. that sort of does a lot of that aggregation for you. So fine. 
Yeah, so it doesn't it doesn't get you out of the trap, but it is like a good design, and it's certainly for more nascent protocols that don't have yet the like sort of bandwidth or the attention to have a, a convex thing built on top. VE can be excellent. So we see like so I think I'm excited about that. I'm also excited about a lot of the topics we touched on previously about some fuzzy notion of identity that allows you to then implement a lot of these quadratic voting type solutions. For too long, whenever we talk about quadratic voting, people just say, oh, it's not civil resistant. But that's a little bit lazy. That's kind of very much constraining the design space um, just because of like one feature that is admittedly very hard to overcome, but not impossible. So I think like we do see more and more, uh, more and more promising work around these like notions of fuzzy identity, these like snapshot type uh, voting registers and so on. Things that basically try to prevent the civil attack and therefore can implement a much more like community driven approach. We already see that a little bit, I guess, um, in practice, but it turns tends to be like mostly via the PR mechanism. I think one good example is when Wonderland was having those issues back in February of this year. If you recall, I think, you know, something like over half the community or at least over half the votes had decided to, uh, now I can't recall if it was to keep Wonderland operational or to shut it down, but it turns out that just a couple of whales had been driving that boat and that actually the entire community at large had preferred the other side. And so that's like one example where in an, you know, without intervention, you would just have this like vote that's effectively decided by a handful of people. But of course, then the community managed to generate a lot of outrage and they sharpened or they sort of blunted the worst of that plan and so on. But I think if we can embed those mechanisms into the actual tokenomic. Yes, I, I think there, there is really great better. scope to use mechanism design to prevent whale centric voting or or generally the accumulation of concentrated stake as a means of control in a way that, for example, Web2 has completely failed to do um, with the dual share class method of maintaining a centralized control. And I mean, I mean sometimes that's great for a speed of execution and all, but uh, in, in crypto, you have to have the opposite by default. And so you, you can also build in mechanisms that prevent the permanent control of the system by one party. And uh, actually, to uh, to complement your point, Nihar, now that you've mentioned VE, I have to mention vesting. So um, that there are ways to integrate this uh, identity spectrum, uh, you know, volunteering a given amount of information with different notions of commitment to the system. So vote escrow is one means of commitment in the sense that you are locking up your tokens for a certain amount of time. You're saying. I have confidence in this platform. I care about it to this extent, uh, and so give me some voting power. And uh, you can also have a an inverse mechanism, like uh, implemented by Platypus and some others, that's uh, more of a reputation vesting. Uh, it's it's a yield vesting in Platypus's case, but the overall concept is that you start at a low level, vest up to full voting power or yield boosting or what have you, and then you're fully committed to the system. But if you, ever with, uh, if you ever withdraw, then you lose all of that stake at once. And so it's interesting how uh, you can travel in either direction, but still embed some notion of commitment. And I think that's, that will be even more powerful once we have different and uh, really scalable notions of identity on chain, because then you can decide how much of your reputation you want to commit to what type of mechanism. I don't know where we'll end up on that, but I think the combination will be very powerful. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that that's going to be. It, it kind of needs that identity for that to to happen, but once it's there, we can use it. And like the the ladder mechanism that you have really really reminds me of what Web two has, right? The, the corporate structure. It's like you get shares vested all the time, but if you resign, they're gone. Exactly. And if you stay, you're going to get paid out, right? And you can only do that with an employment contract. You can't do that with with a DAO where you just you get your tokens, right? Um, so, yeah, that's that's I think is is really required for that to to be implemented. But other than yeah, reinventing the the old world in a way, again, um, with fancier tools, yeah. Well, <clears throat> yeah, the old world, obviously, you know, there's a lot of things wrong with the yeah. old world, but I also we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, like the old world maybe more by sort of legal, uh, by, by legal sanction than anything else, yeah. found out ways of generally having good incentive alignment. And in many ways, I often think that the tokenomic challenge of crypto is bringing a lot of those principles, but doing it in an incentive, a pure sort of decentralized incentive-based yeah. One of the, yeah. the greatest benefits of crypto as an industry is lowering barriers to entry in the sense that if you are if you are a developer and you like a protocol and it's open source, you can just fork it. Now, of course, most of the time you do this, it's derivative, but if you have a key addition to make, then it can be transformative. And in particular, this prevents the ossification of a given model that is 90% good bundled with 10% bad, because as long as somebody's aware of what that 90% good is, they can just extract the relevant part turn it into an independent service that uh, otherwise parallels yeah. the original and off they go. Yeah. Yeah. And and that can be then, yeah, the, the, the breakthrough that was, that was required, right? Maybe not with the old protocol, but, but with the new one, um, definitely can. Cool. Yeah. Um, I'm, I know that we're kind of on the top of the, the time that we had, uh, that we had assigned to this. So any, anything that we've missed, um, kind of, we haven't covered in the article that you guys want to run through, mention, bring on, uh, before we wrap it up. We could probably do another hour like because I've got a lot more, yeah. uh, I'm, things uh... that we, you know, like Olympus, whatever, <laughs> but I'm, I'm sure that will bring us into some rabbit holes. Uh, so, yeah, we, uh, I think we've ranged pretty wide. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think we ranged wide. I mean, like, I just probably just want to emphasize that, like, you know, we see a lot of tokenomic designs and the good news is I think Lucas and I probably would agree that they keep getting better. You know, yeah. every month brings a new set of tokenomic designs that we see, um, and they are improving. And maybe some part of it is like, we learn the mistakes of the past. Maybe some part of that is in bear markets. There's a little less of a frenzy to rush and or to rush pro projects out, and people spend a bit more time thinking about it. But I certainly remember, like a year ago, we'd see projects that have very, very let's call them bizarre tokenomic designs. We see fewer of those now. We do more tinkering on the margins and less like arguing for an entire rethink. Um, and that is promising because you know, like as we keep going, there'll certainly be a lot of topics we don't know about, like collectively as a community. And I kind of feel like we're getting very close to that frontier of now, like going well beyond the types of models and designs that we can. Yeah, I'd really just like to, to drive home that point that bear us. markets are good for building because e even <laughs> when we're speed running financial history, 
in uh, you know in a bull market, there are nearly irresistible tendencies that even the best uh, intentioned protocols are pressured to favor certain things that uh, you know in, enhance short-term attention. Maybe because they wouldn't even recognize they wouldn't even clear the threshold without it. Whereas in a bear market, you have to be committed to things that will survive in the long term because you you can't design them for the short term. It will do you no good. And so the the bear yeah, market yeah. is. It, it not only washes out whatever didn't need to be there, but it also encourages all of the best tendencies for long-term design. Yeah, yeah. Bear market kind of it just it just makes you think long-term. That's that's what it does, and that reflects in token designs, um, in the build of the protocol, in everything. So I think that's it's really good, and I hope it will stick this time a little bit longer. This view on fundamentals and sustainable token design, as you called it. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I mean, we hope that it's not in the context of a bear market that we just have yeah, I should say, sustainable yeah. token design in good times and bad times too. Um, yeah, yeah. But for now, I think we'll, you'd be we'll like a, of, a little we'll, bit, we'll take you know, that, that sticks every time that we can then carry over and then we'll be forgotten in the bull around a lot of it. But then in the next bear market, we, we kind of like build on it. And so there's this incremental, <laughs> Uh, evolution sort of, of of this design getting better and better. As the size as grows, learn. the uh, relative swings get smaller and eventually you approach stability. Yeah. So you know, the, the, the more crypto yeah. matures, the better these models will be. Yeah, yeah, true, yeah. Cool guys, this was, uh, this was really interesting. Um, uh, yeah, where can people find you, uh, subscribe to the stuff that you're gonna publish next? I'm sure it's gonna be interesting and Worth reading, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, thanks. Um, I think there's actually a bigger research team behind us at Jump. So probably the best way to see all of that content is to look at Jump's Twitter like account, yep. which is uh, at Jump underscore. Um, but then in addition, you know, Lucas and I, you can always follow us. Mine is, uh, my, my Twitter handle is at uh, is, uh, sans gravitas. And uh, probably the best way to, to find us is uh, you can you can just go to the Jump Crypto site to you know read some of our posts. Uh, there are a lot of compositions from the entire research team, all of which we'd love to highlight. And uh, yeah, feel free to reach out to us anytime. Cool. I'll link all that, so don't worry writing it down. Um, but anyway, this was this was great fun, guys. Thanks for taking the time. All right, cool. Thanks so much. This podcast was not financial or tax advice. This channel is strictly educational and is not investment advice or a solicitation to buy or sell any assets or to make any financial decisions. This video is not tax advice. Talk to your accountant, do your own research. None of this is legal advice. This podcast is strictly educational. Talk to your lawyer.